0: If you would, uh, open up your scriptures to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11. I just want to say, um, every now and then, uh, you preach a sermon, and you feel the weight of the spiritual warfare that's going on around the topic that you're discussing. And... uh, this, this morning was one of those times. I really feel like the topic that we're tackling, especially at the end of this sermon, just to warn you, is the front lines of spiritual warfare in our culture and within the church. And so, in a lot of ways, this is a heavy sermon. It's kind of heavy on my soul right now, um, and I would pray that you would have grace on me as we go through uh, this passage this morning. If you would, let me just pray. Dear me, Father God, I do feel the spiritual warfare behind this idea of unity, Lord. God, you say in Ephesians to put on the belt of truth, or to take this, the, the sword of the Spirit, which is your word, or its ideologies, its philosophies, its false teachings that the devil uses to attack the church. Help us understand that, Lord. Help us to be humble enough to to look at our own souls, our own beliefs, and wonder how much influence does a culture have in in, in how I look at things, how I look at my marriage, how I look at my relationships with people in the church and and people outside of the church, Lord. God, just pray that your spirit is with us this morning and that Truth is heard and nothing else, Lord. Your word is heard and nothing else, Lord. Help protect our church, Lord, from the false beliefs that are trying to derail us, Lord, from the gospel, from you. God, be with us this morning. In your son's name, amen. Let me just read Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11. It says this, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the, the flesh by hand. Remember that you were, at that time, separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ really believe verse 11 is starting to get into the heart of this letter that Paul has written to the church of Ephesus. The overarching theme of Ephesus, Ephesians, this, this letter to Ephesus, Ephesians, I really believe is love. And this is debated, but I think as I've read through the book that love is the overarching theme, and, and as I've said, the depth of God's grace lived out in love. Paul has taken us deep deep to lay the foundation for us to love each other within the church, to bring unity within the church. In verse 11, Paul starts to discuss, really, unity between redeemed Jews and redeemed Gentiles. And if you don't know what that word Gentile means, it just means anyone that wasn't a Jew. Anyone that wasn't a Jew. Anyone that wasn't an Israelite, redeemed Israelites, redeemed Jews, and redeemed Gentiles. And really to understand this passage and this this letter and this book as a whole, you have to understand the hostility between Jews and Gentiles. How unlikely these two groups would come together and be one body, a church together, unified in love. The Gentiles hated the Jews, and the Jews hated the Gentiles. And if you just look at the Old Testament, you see it. Right? The whole Old Testament is war between Gentile nations and Israel. We in the time of David, the Philistines, right? Gentile nation at war with Israel. The 7th century BC, Assyria, a Gentile nation comes in and destroys the northern kingdom of Israel. The 6th century BC, Babylon, a Gentile nation comes in and destroys the southern kingdom of Israel. Even in the intertestamental period, the time between the Old Testament and New Testament, the Greeks came in and ruled Israel. In fact, a Greek ruler sacrificed a pig in the temple to Zeus just to make the Jews mad. This is the context of the New Testament, right? I mean, throughout the history of Israel, There's been war, abuse, oppression, massacre done by the hands of Gentile nations. Even in 70 AD, think about this. Less than 10 years after Paul has written this letter that we're going over, Ephesians, Rome, a Gentile nation, comes in and completely destroys the temple, completely destroys Jerusalem, and massacres men, women, and children in the street, crucifying hundreds of men in a day. Jewish men. The Gentiles hated the Jews, and the Jews hated the Gentiles. In fact, turn with me, if, if, you, if you want to, to uh, Acts 11, verse 1. It'll be on the screen. Acts 11, verse 1. I just want you to see, because to understand what's going on, you have to understand this hostility between the Jews and the Gentiles. Acts 11, verse 1 says this, Now the apostles, and just take a second and think about that. Apostles are included in this. Now the apostles and the brethren. The brethren are Christians, but these are Jewish Christians. The the gospel hasn't yet gone out to the Gentile nations. It's starting to in, 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 in chapter 11. These are Jewish Christians. Now the apostles and the brothers who were uh, throughout Judea, heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. In other words, the gospel. Gentiles were being saved. Verse 2. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him. The circumcision party is Jewish Christians. They criticized Peter. Why? Look at verse 3. They said, you went to an uncircumcised men and ate with them. You ate with Gentiles. That's how deep this hatred was. Jews were not allowed to eat with Gentiles in a Gentile house. Because they were pagan worshipers. They were idolaters. You don't fellowship with idolaters. You You don't eat with people that are unclean. That's what Jews thought of Gentiles. A pig is unclean. Gentiles are unclean. We want to see how deep this hatred went. Turn to verse 19, Acts 11, verse 19. Now those who were scattered, it says, and just remember, Jesus gave the Great Commission, take the gospel to the nations. Right? Jewish church, they didn't. <laughs> so God says, okay, well, persecution, go. We're scattering you. Right? You're going to the Gentile nations. Well, look what happened. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. They only shared the gospel with Jews. They thought the Gentiles were too lost. I mean, just think about that. They went to a a city, a nation, and and looked for the Jews. Said, "You're, you're too lost, you're going to hell. You're too lost, you're going to hell. The gospel's not for you. Oh, there's a Jew, let's share the gospel with him. The Jews hated the Gentiles. The Gentiles hated the Jews. Now fast forward to the end of Acts. Paul's in prison. He's writing this letter to the church at Ephesus. And now at this point, the church was full of Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. And they were called to be one body. They were called to be united in love in Christ. Christ. By so much of the New Testament and so much of Paul's writing deals with this relationship between the Jews and the Gentiles. Paul is going to start addressing unity in verse 11. And he starts by addressing the Gentile Christians. Those that weren't Jews but Christians in the church of Ephesus because they were in the ma- majority in Ephesus. And there's three points of the sermon this morning. And the three points are this. Our are, are this, are shame... Our separation and our salvation, our shame, our separation, and our salvation. And I use that word "our because unless you 're a Jew this morning, a Jewish Christian this morning, unless your 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 heritage goes back to a Jewish lineage, you are a Gentile Christian. You have a Gentile heritage that 's the majority of us i 'm assuming this morning. <laughs> We are Gentile believers like the majority of the church in Ephesus. So our shame, our separation, and our salvation. Let's start with our shame. Look at verse 11. Therefore, therefore. That word's important in Greek. It it means therefore, or it means for this reason. In other words, it points backwards to a previous phrase, verse, or passage. and, And in this case, it points back to all of Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, the sermon last week which is the gospel. It's the gospel. Who we were before God acted in our life. Verse 1, and you were dead. Net cross. That's you, spiritually dead. That's who, who you were before God acted in your life. Verse 2, you were following the course of this world, following the prince of power of the air. Verse 3, you, you lived in the passage of your flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. Verse 1, and you. Verse 4, but God. But God acted. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. It's the gospel. It's grace that we've been saved. Ephesians 2 1 through 10, it's the gospel. It's the clearest passage, one of the clearest passages in all of Scripture on, on salvation. It's grace. By grace through faith, that we are saved. And here's why this is important the gospel doesn't just have to do with how we get into heaven. It does have to do with that, right? (laughs) But it doesn't just have to do with how we get into heaven. The gospel has everything to do with how we treat one another, how we love one another how we are unified as one body in Christ. We are unified because we are all in Christ, his body. We are unified because we, we all have the same identity. We were dead. And God acted, and now we're alive in Christ. It's all of our stories. You're saved this morning. And this is why Paul starts the section on unity with therefore therefore the gospel the gospel is foundational to love and unity listen our reconciliation with god is foundational to our reconciliation with each other it's foundational verse 11 therefore remember 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 points forward paul's telling us is going to tell us something to remember Right? This is the only command in the first three chapters. Remember, Ephesians is, is split up pretty much in half. The first three chapters, is, there's this deep theology of what has happened to us. The last three chapters, chapters 4 through 6, is, is, is how we should live because of this deep theology. There's 39 imperatives in the last three chapters, 39 commands. There's one command in the first three chapters. And it's found in verse 11. Therefore, remember. Paul is commanding us to remember. Inspired by God, God is commanding us to remember. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. You Gentiles, called the uncircumcision by the circumcision, Jews. Paul is commanding us to remember that that the Jews used to call us the uncircumcision. We were the uncircumcised. This doesn't come across in English, but there's actually two different words that are used for circumcision in the Greek. What the Jews called the Gentiles literally means the foreskin. It was a nasty, derogatory term of how the Jews thought of the Gentiles. This leads to a question. Why is circumcision such a big deal? I mean, we see this throughout Scripture. If you're new to the Scripture, you see this idea of circumcision and not circumcised. Why is circumcision such a big deal? Well, circumcision in the Old Testament was a covenantal sign. It was a sign of a covenant. Right? A sign that showed the Jews... We're in a covenant relationship with God. They're in a relationship with God. Circumcision in the Old Testament, in a lot of ways, is, is like a wedding ring. And think about this. My wedding ring is a covenantal sign. It shows that I am in a covenantal relationship with my wife, Sarah. It shows people I'm married. Circumcision in the Old Testament was a covenantal sign that the Israelites we were in a covenantal relationship with God. And Jews were proud of their covenant with God. The Abrahamic covenant that they had that started in, with Abraham was circumcision. God commanded Abraham and his descendants to be circumcised right, as a sign of a covenant that was made with Abraham and his descendants. One theologian said this, the Jews were widely known in the ancient world as those who were circumcised. They were proud of the distinction of circumcision, a God ordained covenantal sign that goes back to Abraham. Cir- circumcision was a sign that the Jews were in a relationship, a covenant, with the one true living God, Yahweh. It was their identity. And everyone else in the Old Testament, everyone that wasn't a Jew, every other nation was considered the uncircumcision. Those that aren't in a relationship with God. Those that don't have a covenant with God. Those that are separated from God. Those that are hopeless. Which leads us to the second point this morning. Our shame. second point is our separation. Look at verse 12. Remember. Don't forget. Remember that you. This is Gentile Christians. This is us. That you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Paul tells us to remember five things. Five things. We were separated from Christ. In the Old Testament, Gentiles had no hope of a coming Messiah, a coming Christ. The Messiah was promised to the Jews. Jews had hope. And this hope was revealed in the Old Testament, the Jewish scriptures of the Old Testament. All the way back to Genesis 3.15, a seed is coming that will crush the serpent's head. Or Genesis 49.10, a king is coming from the line of Judah. Or Deuteronomy 18.15, a prophet is coming that will be greater than Moses. Or Psalms 2, a king is coming that will rule every king. Or Psalms one ten, a king that's coming that will sit at the right hand of God. Or Isaiah 7.14, he will be born to a virgin. Or Isaiah 9, he will sit on the throne of David and, and be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Or Micah 5.2, he will be born in Bethlehem, the city of David. Or Daniel 7, 13-14, he will be the great son of man who will come with the clouds of heaven and all peoples and nations and languages will serve him. Or Zechariah 9, he will come to Jerusalem riding on a donkey with salvation and righteousness and he will speak peace. This king was promised to the Jews in the Jewish scripture in the Old Testament. The Gentiles were separated from Christ's Separated from this promise coming king to the Jews because Gentiles were, look at verse 12, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. Gentiles were alienated from the state of Israel. They weren't Israelites. Israel was a theocracy, a a nation of whom God himself was to be king and lord. He gave that nation his special blessings, protection, and love. He gave them his covenants, his law, his priesthood, his sacrifices, his promises, and his guidance. All these benefits were given to God's people, the nation of Israel. And Gentiles were, look at verse 12, strangers to the covenants of promise. All the great covenants of the Old Testament were made with Israel. Gentiles were strangers to the Abrahamic covenant, to the Mosaic covenant, to the Davidic covenant. One pastor said this within the covenants God gave and renewed. His promises to bless, to prosper, to multiply, to save and redeem Israel. Within them, within these covenants, he promised to give his people a land, a kingdom, a king. And and to those who believed in him, he promised eternal life in heaven. In the Old Testament, Gentiles were strangers to these promises. And therefore, they had no hope. Look at verse 12. Having no hope. Gentiles were without hope because they didn't have a relationship with God. They didn't have access to Him. Having no hope without God in the world. Gentiles were without God in the world. They didn't have the true God. All they had were fake gods, man-made gods, idols, lifeless gods, gods like them, dead, necros lifeless, unable to respond, completely dead, unable to do anything. They didn't have access to the living God, the true God, the God that can save. But Look at verse 13. But now in Christ. I love verse 13. It just reminds me of verse 4, right? But God... Let me just read Ephesians 2, 1. And you were dead in your trespasses and sin, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of power of the air, the spirit that is now at work, and the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Verse 4, but God, love it, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Verse 11 does the same thing, verse 11 through 13. Look at verse 11. Therefore remember, don't forget this, remember that one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope without God in the world, but now in Christ Jesus. But God. Leads us to our third point, our salvation. Our salvation. Look at verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Those that were far off, so the Gentiles, have been brought near. And this is Isaiah 57, 19. Peace, peace to the far and to the near, says the Lord. This is Acts two thirty-nine. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off. Everyone whom the Lord God calls to Himself, you who once were far off, have been brought near. Brought near. Gentiles were far off, without hope, but now we have been brought near by the blood of Christ. That's good news. That's good news. That's the gospel. That's what we celebrate: the Lord's Supper. Christ died for our sins on the cross and the gospel has gone out to gentile nations our our nations and we have been saved by the blood of Christ and brought near to a relationship with God listen there's only two types of people in this world there's only two types of people in this world there are those that are far off those that are not saved and those that have been brought near by the blood of Christ the saved that's it Look at verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Right? The human race, when it comes to race, age, gender, upbringings, nationalities, families, neighborhoods, there's only one distinction that matters. Those that are far off, the unsaved, and those who have been brought near by the blood of Christ, the saved. Right? That's our identity, more than anything else. And there's a lot of things that define us as people, but more than anything else, it transcends everything. Our identity should be being in Christ if you're saved this morning. And there's two application points that I want to spend some time on this morning. And the first application point, I'll be really quick, but I can't get past this passage without saying the importance of missions. The importance of missions, the first application point. The importance of missions are cross-cultural work. The importance of cross-cultural work. Look at verse 11 again. Therefore remember, don't, don't forget this, that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh are called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision. That's the Jews which is made in, in, in the flesh by hands. Remember that you Gentiles, that's Gentiles, that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in this world. There are, there are thousands of people groups in the same place right now. Having no hope and without God in this world. Verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus You who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Again, who is Paul talking to? He's talking to Gentile Christians, non Jewish Christians. Who are we? Unless you're a Jewish Christian this morning, this is us. We have a Gentile heritage, a pagan heritage. You know what that means? If it wasn't for a missionary, a cross-cultural worker, a person that crossed a cultural boundary to share the gospel, and probably learned a language to share the gospel in that language and a culture to share that gospel in that culture, it wasn't for someone doing that. Right? If someone didn't do that for your people group, my people group, maybe thousands of years ago, maybe Paul himself, you have never heard the gospel. Look what Paul says in verse eleven. Therefore, remember remember, don't forget this. The blood of Christ brought us near who were far off. And Romans 1.16 says this, for I am not ashamed of the gospels as Paul is saying, I'm I'm not ashamed of the good news. For it is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. In other words, we need to take that gospel to, to the ends of the earth. There are people groups that need the gospel, that have no one in that people group evangelizing them. And we need to go. Or we need to send. And we should send well. We should send cross-culturals well. Well meaning we should love on them. We should be there for them. We should keep them accountable. We should make sure what they are teaching is truly the gospel. The church has failed at this for a while now. And there's all types of messes that are going out into the nations that aren't the gospel. The health, wealth, and prosperity gospel is taking over Africa. We need the purity of the gospel going out to the nations. That means the church is responsible for that. brings me my second application point. Second application point is this. It's a call for unity Within the church. It's a call for unity within the church by finding your identity in Christ over everything else. Call for unity by finding your identity in Christ over everything else. True unity within the church starts by having an identity of being in a relationship with God, being in Christ. Why Paul starts verse eleven, this, this, this passage is moving into unity. He starts verse eleven with therefore pointing back to the gospel. Ephesians two, one through ten. Again, according to Scripture, there is only two types of people in this world. There are those that are far off, unsaved, and those that have been brought near the saved. It's the only distinction that truly matters, not skin color, not gender, not upbringing, not nationality. The only distinction that, that truly matters is, is those that are dead, far off, Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, and those that are alive, near, Ephesians 2, 4 through 10. That's it. If you're a Christian this morning, your identity more than anything else, and there's other things that define us, I'm not saying that, but this transcends everything, is being in Christ. It's being in Christ. That's where unity starts. You think Paul is trying to make that clear? Look at verse 1, verse 3. Or chapter 1, verse 3. Who has blessed us in Christ. Look at verse 4. Chose us, in him. Look at verse five. Predestine us as sons through Jesus Christ. Look at verse six. He has blessed us in the beloved. Look at verse seven. In him we have redemption. Look at verse nine. Making known to us the mysteries of his will according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ. Look at verse ten. Uniting all things in him. Look at verse eleven. In him We have obtained an inheritance. Look at verse 12. We who were the first to hope in Christ. Look at verse 13. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were were sealed by the promised Holy Spirit. Look at verse 15. I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus. He doesn't stop there. Look at chapter 2, verse 5 made us alive together with Christ. Verse 6. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places and just so you know in Christ Jesus. Verse 7. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus. And then verse 13, But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Paul's just being relentless. Your identity, more than anything else, is in Christ, if you're a Christian this morning. This identity transcends all other identities. Identities. Look, I labor this point because there's a worldview that's being birthed before our eyes out of secular society, out of a postmodern culture that comes from radical feminism and radical Marxism. It's a worldview that teaches that your identity is not found in Christ, but instead it's found in being a victim victimhood identity. This worldview says that everyone's a victim, and victimhood is how we should define ourselves. It's where identity should be found. If you're a woman, you've been victimized by men. If you're a woman and a minority, you've been victimized two ways, men and racism. If you're a woman and a minority and a homosexual, you've been victimized in three ways. If you're a woman and a minority and a homosexual and you're overweight, you've been victimized in four ways. And just keeps going. Your identity in this new worldview is found in victimhood. It's becoming a new religion a false religion. We need to understand this because it's how young people, the generation that's coming underneath us, is, are identifying themselves. Purely from a victimhood, from an oppressive society. I think I'm making this up. It has a name. It's called intersectionality. It's being taught in most secular universities today. It's become the new religion of the secular left. It's a new worldview. It's a new meta narrative. It's an overarching story. That's what ne- meta narrative means. It's the overarching story that defines who we are. Postmodernism, we have to understand what's going on. Postmodernism said that there is nothing outside of us that defines us. There's nothing outside get rid of your scriptures, get rid of any religion. There's nothing outside of us that defines us. That left a void, that left a vacuum. We, we by nature, have to find something that defines us. So I believe intersectionality has filled that void. Intersectionality teaches that we are all victims of oppression and discrimination. The more intersections, that's where this word comes from, the more intersections of oppression and discrimination and victimhood, the more right you have to speak in public. It's a worldview that attacks free speech. Beverly free speech is getting attacked in our nation right now. It's a worldview that attacks the pursuit of truth. It's why secular universities are becoming such hostile places for, for anyone that disagrees with any of their ide- ideologies or worldviews. I bring this up not because of politics either. It's not a political issue. It affects politics, it's a worldview issue, it's bigger than politics. It's a worldview issue, and this worldview is creeping into the church. And one of my jobs, a calling as a pastor, is to preach the word, but Titus tells me it's also to defend. It means I have to keep an eye out of false teachings and false beliefs that are, that are fringing on the church. And this is one of them. I told you, I feel the spiritual warfare in this. This worldview says that you should find your identity more than anything else in being a victim. I'm seeing more and more people finding their identity in being a victim instead of being in Christ. And here's the danger with that. When your identity is found in being a victim, it does two things. It does more than two things, but here's two dangerous things. The first one is this. It takes the focus off your personal sins. It takes the focus off your personal sins. We see this in counseling all the time. 90% of the people that come into counseling see themselves as the victim. It's rare to see someone come in and say, I have this sin that I want to work on. I have a personal sin that I want to work on. Sometimes even when, when a person comes in as a victim and you point out, their personal sins within this relationship or whatever is going on, they get extremely offended and say, how dare you? I'm the victim. It takes the focus off your personal sins. I'll just tell you what I do in counseling. If You come in for counseling, one most likely, especially if it has to do with a relationship, I'll draw a circle on the board and say, within this relationship, how much is it the other person's fault and how much is it your fault? And be honest with me. A lot of people will say, it's 90% their fault, it's 10% my fault. You know what I'll say? You need to work on that 10%. (laughs) You're responsible for that 10% between you and God. And that person could be sinning against you horribly. I get that. You're responsible for that 10%. People get offended when I say that. The second thing this does, finding your identity and victimhood, puts all the focus on you. Puts all the focus on you and not God and His grace. It's all about you how you deserve better, how you are worth more, how you have been hurt. And you you better believe the church hurt movement came out of this. Of course, the church is going to hurt you. We're full full of people that are sinners. (laughs) Yes. How you have not been treated fairly. All the focus becomes self focus. It's me, 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 my hurts, my wants, my rights. You know, this attitude will destroy friendships, it will destroy marriages. And if you focus on that 90% instead of your 10%, it's going to destroy your marriage. It'll destroy unity within the church. The the scriptures teach something radically different than intersectionality and victimhood identity. Scriptures teach that there's only two identities that matter those that are unsaved, dead, in trespasses and sins far off, and those that are saved have been made alive in Christ now near. That's it. Scripture teaches that there's only two overarching identities. There's a lot of things that define us, and I'm not trying to downplay that. We all come from different backgrounds and, and have different stories, but there's, there's only two overarching identities. Those that are not in Christ and those that are in Christ. And neither one of these identities are victims. Neither one are victims. The unsaved are products of their own nature, The Bible says that the unsaved are sick, and I'm talking about spiritually sick, not physically sick here. The physical sickness, when Jesus came and healed people that were physically sick, it pointed to a spiritual sickness. That The unsaved are sick, and, and Jesus is the healer, but their sin is what caused the sickness. Spiritually. It's not always true physically. Unsaved are products of their own nature. The saved are products of grace. God's grace, God's works. Verse 4, but God. Ephesians 2, 1 through 10 tells us, verse 1, and you, you were. Verse 4, but God, he acted. I want to be clear, too, what I'm not saying this morning. I'm not saying that there aren't victims out there. We live in a, a fallen world, and people are sinned against Horribly. There's, there's, there's abuse out there. There's many of you that have been abused. There's many of you that are truly victims. And I say that word truly because everyone wants to be a victim nowadays. When everyone's a victim, it downplays those that are truly victims. We should always have compassion and love for those that are truly victimized. Always. We should want justice for the individual. We should weep and bear each other's burdens. I'm not saying we should take abuse lightly at all. I just want to be clear on that. But listen, if you're a Christian, your identity is found in Christ, not being a victim. It's found in Christ, not being a victim. I believe Paul is teaching. He's teaching that. That finding our identity in Christ is foundational to unity. It's Foundational to unity. We are sinners saved by grace. The gospel is foundational to unity and love. We're going to see that in chapters 2 and 3. He's moving into this argument. I just want to end by saying this. Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, just levels the playing field. It doesn't matter it's no matter what your background is, it matters what your background is, I'm not saying that, but no matter what your background is, if you're a Christian this morning, you were dead and now you're alive. You were dead and now you're alive. Just think of the Lord's Supper this morning. Think of the Lord's table. We all come to the table all equally. Sinners saved by grace. There's no hierarchy We're all sinners saved by grace, and that's, that's what Paul starts this whole section on unity, that we were dead and now alive, and that's our identity that should unify us into one body. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, God, Lord, I pray for two things. First, Lord, I pray that our church is unified. That our church is, is just full of love for each other, Lord. And grace and patience, Lord. Because we're all still sinners. And we all sin against each other, Lord. That we would lovingly interact with each, other's, in, in, with each other, Lord, the way that you have called us to. And that may be speaking truth boldly in love, Lord. That, that's what we're called to do. But it means that we understand that we all are sinners saved by grace. We were all spiritually dead. And now we're alive because you acted. God, help that be the foundation of our church for unity. God, I also pray that you protect us. You protect us from these false teachings, Lord. From these ideologies, Lord. From from these, these philosophies and false religions, Lord, that Satan is trying to use to cripple the church. They're so deceptive, Lord. We just, we just believe them. The culture is so, so influence us. Help us to see clearly, Lord. God, I pray you protect us, Lord. That we look at your word. Lord, we look at your word and examine all beliefs through your word, Lord, to see what's true and what's not true. God, I feel the weight of this spiritual warfare that is going on. And, and you have told us that, that truth is the belt, Lord. That your word is the sword. Help us to remember that, Lord. That we would be students of your word, Lord. And that we would be seeking truth, God. I pray that, that we're known for that as a church, Lord. And, and through that, Lord, that your spirit just protects us from false religions. In your son's name, amen.